Hello, my friends. This is Rabbi Yaakov Walby. And before we begin the podcast, I want to just give you a quick, short message. As listeners know, these podcasts are almost exclusively recorded with a live audience. So it's always a little bit awkward for me to talk to you, to communicate and to address the podcast listeners when talking to a room full of people. So I want to take a brief moment to address those of you who are listening online or on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and provide you with a big thank you and a short update on 2017 and a little bit of plans in 2018. Our organization, Torch, the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston, was founded in 1998 with a simple mission, to connect Jews and Judaism. Our deepest belief is that the Torah is the heritage of the Jewish nation, and the best way to empower our nation going forward is by providing enhanced Jewish learning and spiritual development opportunities in all different kinds of ways. So one of the ways that we do that is that we partner with local shuls in the, in the Houston area to provide them with adult education. You know, they have rabbis, of course, but they're very busy dealing with all kinds of life cycle events and marriages and weddings and bar mitzvahs and all that. They outsource their adult education to us. And to date, we've partnered with 18 shuls in and around Houston. In 2012, we came up with a great idea. We have the rabbis giving the lectures anyhow to a live audience. Why not just record it and then edit the audio and then share it with those who are listening to podcasts and to expand our audience to not just the people in Houston, but the people all around the world. And the results have been incredible. In 2017, for example, we produced 100 and 35 podcast episodes that were downloaded more than 200,000 times, which is roughly four times the numbers that we had in 2016 and all over the world, primarily, of course, in English-speaking countries, the United States and Canada and Australia and the like, but in 118 countries worldwide, thanks to the podcasts and the other platforms such as videos that we started doing Torch is no longer the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston alone. It's the Outreach Resource Center of the Hemisphere. So first of all, I want to thank you. You, the people, the listeners, the friends who take their time out of their busy day, whether it's on your commute or it's at home with your computer or however you consume the podcast. Thank you for studying with me. Whether it's Torah and Jewish philosophy on This Jewish Life, or it's on the other podcast, the Eternal Ethics Podcast, Perke Avos, or if, if it's the Parsha Podcast, we've been going through the Parsha each week for more than a year now, or maybe it's learning about Jewish history and the Jewish History Podcasts. I appreciate the time that you have invested in studying together with me. Thank you. Many of you have already reached out to me personally uh, at rabbiwalby at gmail.com or on Facebook or on Twitter with comments or questions, and I want to tell you that it means so much to me And it's intensely rewarding and gratifying and, frankly, I would say humbling to hear people tell me that I affected their lives. It means so much that I can inspire, hopefully, and teach. And so please keep those emails and those communications coming. I also want to thank those who have donated to our organization. In 2017 in particular, there was a swell of donations from people who live far away from Houston. And they connected to us and to our organization through the podcast or the videos. 
And without the ongoing support from our students, from our friends, and our partners, we cannot continue our efforts. And each one of y'all who have contributed, you should know that you're really partners in everything that we do. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You are keeping this wonderful organization humming. In every podcast episode in the description, there's a link to our website, torchweb.org. You could submit donations, and I ask you to consider helping in our efforts to connect Jews and Judaism in Houston and beyond in the hemisphere everywhere. Also, one more request. If you have a friend or a colleague or a coworker or a spouse or a cousin or whomever that you think will enjoy the content, maybe they're a history aficionado or they like the Parsha or they like stimulating naughty philosophical dilemmas, however, whatever they like, find something, either it's a podcast episode or podcast channel, share it with them, share something, help spread our message forward. 2018 has been off to a rocking start. Hopefully, please God, we're going to be launching new podcast channels this year. We're also working on a new video series initiatives. In particular, we already have a plan in place to adapt the Torah 101 podcast, which is the intellectual's introduction to Torah, everything that someone who wants to approach the issue rationally, everything they need before they approach Torah, we're turning that into a video series. So stay tuned for that. And lastly, this is going to be a little bit of a teaser and I apologize for that. I personally have been working on a monumental project for the better part of two years. I told almost no one about it, but now it's nearing completion. And this project was probably the most difficult and intensely laborious efforts that I've undertaken in my life. And now that it's almost done, I could faintly see the light at the end of the tunnel. I just want to tell you, my dear friend and listener, that something really special, in my opinion, is coming and stay tuned for an announcement in the next few months. Again, do email me with questions or comments. I respond to each email. Sometimes I'm a little bit late, so please forgive me about that, but I do get back to you. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. Last week, I was not here. I did not give a Perkevos class because my daughter Miriam, she's in first grade, and she had her sitter play. First grade is when they get the sitter, the prayer book, and uh, they made a whole production. They've been working on it the whole year. And I told my wife, I said, okay, I, I have a class. You know, I know the first grade girls will be disappointed if I'm not there. But I'd really rather be with uh, my, my students, my class, in Avos. She said, absolutely not. <laughs> You're going to be there. Uh, but the, the play was amazing. The girls, they all performed really nicely. We were worried that Miriam would be a little bit too scared and too shy and t- have too much stage fright. Uh, but she was fantastic. And all the girls were all the, have all these choreographed dance moves and all the songs they sang perfectly well. It was actually very nice. <laughs> uh, so, But I missed y'all. I'm happy to be back. Okay, so we're up to chapter 1, Mishnah 14. Uh, this is the third of Hillel's three teachings, three Mishnahs in chapter 1. He's going to reappear elsewhere in Perkavos. But chapter 1, he has three consecutive Mishnahs. And I found it interesting that Hillel, he doesn't get the credit that he needs or that he deserves. Uh, because apparently this particular Mishnah is misattributed to the wazoo. Dan told me that that mattress smack, the guy who sells mattresses in Houston, who makes all those Super Bowl deals and was very famous during Hurricane Harvey. So he apparently has a radio commercial where he says something to the effect of, he quotes this Mishnah, and he's like, source, 
unknown. <laughs> but I also found last night that in September of, 2000, of 2016, Ivanka Trump, she sent a picture, an inspirational picture on Instagram. If not me, who? If not now, when? Source? Emma Watson. Emma Watson, she's, she's an actress. So apparently she said that in her speech to the United Nations or something like that. And that became hers. And then I found a whole article of all the times this was misattributed and people not saying it goes back to Hill. There's something about Hill because Hill, like we said last time, he is the originator of the golden rule. When he tells the convert, that that you hate, don't do to your fellow. And that becomes the golden rule that apparently appears in all other religions, but the source goes all the way back to Hillel. Let's go through this really, I think, powerful uh, Mishnah. And I, I do think that it's it's really motivational and it is worthy to be like a mumper stacker, you know, or something that a screensaver or something that you hang up on your wall because it is powerful because it really is the key, I think, to unleashing the potential that we all have within us. We say every morning in the prayers, She'asa li kol tzorki. It's one of, the, one of the most powerful prayers that we have. We thank the Almighty that he made for me everything that I need. It's a very bold statement. Everything that you need, the Almighty gave you. Now, what does that mean? A lot of things I think I need and I don't have. But the answer is, is that the Almighty recognizes the particular mission of every person. Every person is different because every person has a different mission. If we were all the same, why would there need to be so many of us? But we look at the world as there's a collective mission for humanity, certainly a collective mission for the Jewish people, and there's a collective mission for every individual. And therefore, each one is crafted with abilities and with circumstances and with characteristics that are tailored to their mission. And therefore, we say, okay, I don't know what my mission is, but I can look at the Torah and look at the tools that the Almighty gave me to try to figure it out. It's heartening to think about where everything that I need to do what I need to do, I already have. That's a very powerful thought. But I have the tools, I have the implements, I have the circumstances, but someone needs to do it, and that can only be me. And that is what Hillel is saying in this Mishnah. Let's read this, and then we'll translate, and then we'll see what we could learn or glean from it. So, who haya omer? He would say, another aphorism, another axiom that Hillel was uh, want to say, im ein ani li, mi li. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? Ukishani me. And if I am for myself, what am I? The first clause is be for yourself. And the second clause is if you are for yourself, you're really nothing. What are you? And if not now, when? I think the bottom line of this Mishnah is that we have to inspire ourselves and be self-motivated. We have read about the relationship that people have with their teachers and with their students and with their colleagues and even even Torah. You know, Torah is a divine guidebook to achieving greatness. And we think about it like if you have God's tools, what else do you need? And if you have great teachers, you have great friends, and you have great students, and you have great books in your library, and you study all the time, like what is Hill adding? And I think what he's really adding is that Yes, you may have Torah, and you may have teachers, and you may have students, and you may have friends, and you may have books, and you may have study sessions. Everything, everything that you have, all that are there to empower you from within. 
to change yourself. Because only you can change yourself. And all those other factors that are not exactly you are all there to help you. But there's something that is a person's essence, that is their soul, that is something deep within them, and that is who they are and what they could become. And they have to harness themselves, so to speak, to make themselves what they ought to be. It's a very, very deep idea that your life, your essence is within you. And it's really holy, and it's really special, and it's really lofty. And we, in the Jewish sources, they talk about how the soul, and it comes from from God, and how God makes it, and how holy it is, and how pure it is, and how special it is. That's what he's talking about. He's saying that for you to achieve your role in life, you have to access you. If I am not for me, who is for me? If I'm not myself, if I don't capture the power, the lofty power that's within me, what am I? I'm like identity-less. Just as a, as a way of kind of understanding the depth of, of, of this statement, there is a Talmud that talks about Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says, quite cryptically, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they observed and they studied all of Torah. Now, the problem with that is, is it doesn't work out chronologically. Because Abraham's son is Isaac, whose son is Jacob, whose son is Levi, whose son is Kahas, whose son is Amram, whose son is Moshe. And Moshe is the one who goes to heaven and draws a heavenly Torah down to earth. So before Moshe, the Torah was still present, but it was in the upper spheres. It was with God. In fact, the Talmud tells us that it was, it was with God from way, way before the world was even created. It's like the blueprint for the world. The mighty looked into the Torah and created the world, but it's from the heavenly realm. So Moshe, he's like the link. He's the, he's the emissary who goes to heaven, acquires the Torah, brings it down to us. But Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, they live here, and they're before Moshe, yet the Talmud claims that they studied Torah and they observed all of Torah. So it's a little bit of a problem. And the Midrash addresses it. The Midrash says, how did Abraham study Torah? Now, once Abraham studied Torah, it's not hard to imagine how Isaac would study Torah. Because if Abraham already knows Torah, then maybe he could teach it to Isaac. So the real problem is, how does Abraham study Torah? How does this whole thing get kickstarted? A, a Torah, a pre-Sinai Torah? It's a good question. And the Midrash asks this question and gives two answers. The first answer is that Abraham's kidneys turned into wellsprings that spouted Torah from their kidneys. His kidneys, his nephrological organs turned into springs of Torah, and that taught him Torah. Very bizarre. And then the Midrash continues, an alternative answer. Where did Abraham study Torah from? From himself. Now, the obvious question is, if Abraham studied Torah from himself, so he was a teacher and a student, the teacher does not need to be taught because they already know. It's a very, again, a very bizarre teaching in the, in the Midrash. What does this mean? Abraham studied Torah from his kidneys. Strange. Alternatively, from himself. Also very odd. So I think this dovetails with the teaching of Hillel. We're told that we have a soul. And the soul is buried deep within us. In fact, there is a verse. The verse in Proverbs says, the candle of God is the soul of man. The soul of man is like the candle of God. It's the illumination of God. 
But then it adds, and it says, where is this candle located? Where is this candle that we have within us? It's searching the inner chambers of someone's beton, which means the stomach, innards. It's a very strange verse. This is a verse in Proverbs, I think it's chapter 20, verse 27. We have a candle of God, sounds amazing, who wouldn't love to have a candle of God, illuminating their path, and it's our soul, and we got it. It's the soul of man. It's not the soul of the angels, it's the soul of man, of us. But the problem is, is that it's searching, this candle is searching, not in a way that's exposed to us, it's deep buried within us. And this kind of explains the conflict that we have in our lives. You know, if I, I, I gave this example once. Suppose you have a uh, someone who has abdominal surgery, and the surgeon decides, you know, once he has the whole thing opened, he or she has the whole thing opened, you know what, why don't we just take out the appendix? Appendix only causes trouble. It's open anyhow. Let's just take it off. So the guy wakes up, the patient wakes up from the general anesthesia, and you were to, a- to ask them, okay, I want you to tell me whether or not the surgeon took out your appendix or not. Do you th- imagine they'd be able to know about the sense within them? I would imagine not. Probably not. Uh, they may feel a lot of pain, but that's they wouldn't be able to sense. And even probably years later, how could you tell? You don't have access, so to speak, to the senses. You don't sense your intestines. You know you have them, sure, but it's not kind of vivid. It's not visceral. That's what the verse is telling us. We have a candle of God. We have this amazing power within us. But the problem is, is that we don't really have sensory access to it. It's like our kidneys. It's like our innards. It's like our organs that are buried within us. Yes, we know we have them, but it's not in the forefront of our minds. We all know, yes, we went through biology and anatomy. We know that we have a a, a liver and kidneys and all these internal organs, but it doesn't actually occupy much of our headspace because it's like it's just something that we have within us and it's not who we are, so to speak. We don't identify with that unless it causes problems, God forbid. Only then do we wake up to them. What it's telling us here is that we have a power that's unlimited, candle of God, but it's buried in your innards. And then we're told that the soul that's within us, it's actually all of our life's power. It's our life's vitality. It all comes from that. But we ignore it. In addition, we're told that the soul actually knows all of Torah innately. The soul, remember, Moshe goes to the heavenly realm and he brings the Torah. You know what else comes from the heavenly realm and is brought down over here? Our soul. So the same process that Moshe does, he goes up to the heavens, gets the Torah, brings it down here, actually exists within each and every one of us. We, there's a heavenly soul that's placed over here. Where it's inside us. It's buried within inside of us, but it's in our world. Midrash tells us, Abraham, he studied Torah. This is way before Sinai. The Torah is still in the heavens. What connection does Abraham possibly have to the other sphere, to the other realm? He learned from his kidneys. Very bizarre. <laughs> what does that mean? The answer is, is that Abraham, he unearthed that soul within him. He uncovered, he did the work of trying to identify with his soul, of trying to discover the senses of the soul and change it from being something that's buried down deep within you that you don't even know about to being something that's present in the forefront of your mind. He looked at it from himself. He 
untapped the power of who he really is. He discovered his soul. He wasn't identityless. He discovered his true eternal identity with his soul, which is buried within him. And by doing that, he innately accessed all the knowledge of himself. And what's that? That's his Torah. Says the Talmud, Abraham studied all of Torah. He didn't get it from heavens like Moshe. He got it from heavens in his own way. By untapping the latent power of a soul within him. Theoretically, today, we could all study Torah in two ways. We could open up the books and study the written Torah, the oral Torah, go to teachers, right? Learn Torah. That's one way we can study Torah. Theoretically, we could also go through the process that Abraham did. Right? We also have a soul within us, just like Abraham had, that also has all of Torah within it. So if someone is, is stranded on an island, theoretically, and they did everything that Abraham did, they too would be able to untap Torah baked within them. But it's much harder. So the example, the parable that I made up, so suppose you're, you find out that you have um, huge oil deposits underneath your property. So today, in Texas, you buy a house or whatever, you're probably not buying the mineral rights. Mineral rights is owned by some original guy. Right, right. No one knows who that guy is, but they're very rich. Everyone knows that. So you don't own the mineral rights, but you own the surface rights. So if they find oil in your property, so then you could maybe rent out uh, your property so that way they could put a uh, put a pump and pull out all the oil. But you don't own the oil itself. But suppose you did own the oil itself. Think about it. It's, it's a gold mine that you have within your property. Incredible. Problem is, is that it's 8,000 feet below the surface. And if you want to fill up your car with gasoline, it's of no use to you. So there's two ways you could do it. You could either drill a hole, drill pipes that go 8,000 feet down to the ground, and then deal with all the pressurized oil coming to the, coming to the surface, and then take that oil and bring it to your bathtub and refine it, and take the gasoline that's, and put it in your car. That's one way to get gasoline in your car. It's much simpler to just go to the corner and go to the gas station and fill up the gas. That's much, much easier. But both of them are, are they're both equally plausible ways to result in someone having gas in their tank, but one of them is infinitely easier. So Abraham, he didn't have a gas station on each corner of the intersection. So the only way he could have possibly accessed Torah before Sinai, before Moshe, is if he found it within him. If he t- untapped it with him, and it's a very hard process. you got to deal with all the barriers, so to speak, separating you, your consciousness, from your soul, from your Torah. Uh, but Abraham did it, and therefore he had Torah. Uh, but now, thanks to Sinai, thanks to Moshe, we don't need to go through that laborious process to access Torah. So, so this is this idea that we have greatness baked within us. And to the degree that we're able to identify with that greatness, to unlock me, we're achieving our potential. It's unlikely that any one of us, are not unlikely, it's impossible for any one of us to become like Abraham. But we don't need to become like Abraham. We need to become like what we need to do. You can't blame me for not being Abraham because God doesn't want me to be. Abraham already existed, right? If my job was to be like Abraham, then I would be redundant because we already have an Abraham. I got to be me. Everyone's got to be me, right? And that's what he was telling us. Again, he's telling you to find who you really are, what you really need to be, and your potential that's really within you and your soul, and, and, and discover that. If I am not for me, what does it mean if I am not for me? Me assumes that I exist. He's saying, I, 
which is the part of me that's really me, if that's not me, because I haven't accessed that, what am I? What is me? I don't have an identity. Because my true identity, I haven't, I haven't seized, I haven't grasped. If I am not for me, if, if, if the I, which is my real I, so to speak, the soul that's within me, that really is the motor driving my life, that really is the goal that I have to strive for, if that's not who I am, if I have not identified with that, if I have not melded my consciousness to that entity, what am I? I'm not living myself. I'm living something else. I have a faux existence. I have a faux identity. Very powerful idea that Hillel is saying, of course, there's levels of this because Abraham really became his I, so to speak, his self that within within them. He became his soul. We're probably not going to reach that either. But to the degree that we do become identified with our soul within us, we're moving in the right direction. And that, of course, demands us to take some action on our own. No one else could help someone do that. And the Rambam, in his commentary, in this Mishnah, he, he connects it to the idea of chinuch, of, of education, of parenting. And he quotes the verse in scripture that tells us, You should educate the young person as per their path. Why? And that way also when they grow old, they won't depart it. There's a way of parenting, which is the parents saying, listen, this is my path, and I want you to tread on my path. And that is very dangerous because it's against what that child's really, his essence, his or her essence is. So the role of the parent is to discover the path of the child, and thus no two childs are the same. Every child's different. Every child has their own path. Again, if the goal of the child was to be exactly like the parent, then someone's redundant here. You have to find the path of your child and put them on the on the way towards accessing their path. And then when they're old, they won't depart from it. So what this what this tells us is, is that your goal of a parent is not to hold your child and hold their hand and guide them for the duration of their trip. Your goal is that they should go on their own. Like they should discover who they really are. And that way, you're putting them on the path. You're kickstarting their journey. But they have to go on their own. My grandfather used to say very poetically, he said, the role of a parent is like a candle. He's lighting another candle. If you want to light another candle, you have to kind of touch the candles, the, 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 the lit candle to the unlit wick, and you have to keep it there for a little bit. But then you pull it away, and that candle lights on its own. So the role of the parent is to kind of kickstart that the child's journey, but it has to be the child's journey, and they could do it on their own, and they won't depart from it when they get when they get older. The Ramban Nachmanides in his commentary on the he he contrasts the first two paragraphs of of the Shema. In the first paragraph of the Shema, it says, You should teach the Torah to your children, and you should speak in the words of Torah to your children. However, in the second paragraph of the Shema, it says, Vilimatem o samas benechem, you teach Torah to your, to your sons, Lida berbam, that they should speak in it. So he points out a difference, a discrepancy. In the first chapter, we're told, speak Torah to your children. In the second chapter, we're told, teach Torah to your children so that they speak on their own. And he says, this is what parenting is, this is what chinuch is, this is what education is. Education is that initially, you teach them, 
But then they have to go on their own. They have to go on their own path and learn and discuss amongst themselves. Because if all you're doing is limited to what you're doing, then they're going to depart from that path. You have to put them on the path so that they themselves connect to who they really are, what they really could become, and flourish along the path that is uh, intended for them. My grandfather, used to, he wrote a book called uh, Planting and Building, which is his guidebook to parent, to effective parenting. He, he gave a series of lectures on the topic, and it was transcribed and edited and made into a book. But his core idea is that there's, there's two ways of building something, of, of growing something, of making something from something else. One of them is, is a method of planting, and one of them is a method of building. Like you have a tree. It, it, it also started from very humble roots. You have a building. It also starts from you know one brick at a time. But there's differences. Like the planting is organic, and it's done on its own, so to speak. You put the seed in the ground, and you don't have to be there all the time laying brick after brick. It kind of happens on its own. It's more of a natural process that develops with slight oversight. you got to give some water and sufficient sunlight, etc. Whereas building, right, it's, it's kind of fixed. It's inorganic. Whatever you do, you do. Whatever you don't do, right, that, that cannot happen. And, the, and parenting, he writes, is a little bit of both. You know, there, there's a building factor. You've got to have certain rigid rules. But there's also the idea of planting, let the child flourish on their own. You, you just give a little water and, and, and let things germinate. It's another critical point is that you have to kind of plant ideas that really won't come to fruition until much later. You plant a seed in the ground, it might take a decade before the seed is a, is a, is a tree that could be on its own. But all that stems from the original act of planting. And therefore, there's some aspects of our parenting that are putting a seed into the child's soul, and over time, with slight tending to, that will develop into something really amazing. And of course, you cannot micromanage that. Uh, maybe you can, like they have those trees that they could shape in all funny ways, but that's not natural. You're, you're trying to put a seed on the ground and let it develop on its own. Whereas there's other aspects of parenting where it's all building, it's all rules and, uh, and this and that and bedtime and homework and, right, and brushing your teeth and like it's very fixed, but that doesn't really go, doesn't, you can't, it's just on its own. Like the, that, whatever you build, you build, whatever you don't build, you don't build. And it should be a mix, he argues. There's a mix, there's part of it that's, that's building, part of it's planting. If you just build, then the child will be a robot. It's not going to have any, any sort of real life within them. If you just plant, the child's going to be wild, right? So it's going to be going all different kinds of directions. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. Very interesting idea. And that, I think, does connect to our mission. It's like we're trying to achieve something that the child does on their own. Building in parenting is what the parent does. Planting is what the parent inspires, injects, that will eventually, with the child and with time, with the Almighty, develop on its own. And that's another critical element of parenting that we cannot ignore. I want to read the Rabbeinu Yonah, uh, his commentary uh, not, uh, to this Mishnah, but it's actually not found in his commentary. On this Mishnah, it's found in his amazing work called Sha'arei Tshuva, The Gates of Repentance, in Chapter 2, uh, Section 26. And he writes, I want to finish this, this, this thought with an amazing teaching from the sages of Israel. He quotes Hillel. Hillel said, If I'm not for me, who is not, who will be for me? When I am for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? He explains, 
if a person does not awaken their own soul, what will help all those who give him criticism or give him musr? You could have all the people, all the lectures in the world. Now, thank God, we have all the Torah podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and rate on iTunes. Uh, we have all all kinds of resources that are available to us that could influence us. But if a person doesn't influence themselves, what use is it all the other external influences? Because even though they enter his heart, the words of inspiration enter his heart, on the day that he hears them, he has the Yetzirah Hara, evil inclination, that will make sure that he'll forget it and will remove it from his heart. So what use is it? In one ear, out the other. In one ventricle, out the other. And therefore, a person, when he hears, he or she hears inspiration or criticism, right? criticism is used in the mustard context, they must awaken their soul from within and to place the words upon their heart and to think about it at all times. And they should add, don't just suffice with what the lecturer says, they should add from their own heart more to this idea. And they should isolate in the chambers of their spirit, very, very poetic words, and they should return over it or repeat the ideas and should analyze them and discuss them from all different kinds of mentions that way to add uh, the influence of the inspiration to his heart. And don't rely just on the influence of themselves. That's the first part of the Mishnah. Second part, and when I'm for myself, what am I? He adds, even if I work really hard, we have a tendency to think, like if someone, you know, the day that someone goes on a diet, like they feel so empowered with their self-control and they walk by the candy aisle and they, they start looking down at all those people who are there, people buying Pepsis. What are these? What's wrong with these? Don't they know how much sugar content they have? How many carbs it is? It, it's very easy for us to celebrate our successes very prematurely. And what he's telling us is that, is that the problem with that is, is that the second you have a success and you celebrate it, right, you're taking a victory lap. And it's, if you take a premature victory lap, it's probably unlikely that you'll be able to put in the hard work needed to actually fundamentally change. So he's, Mishnah's warning us is that to actually do this is not easy and it requires a lot of work. And therefore, when you say, okay, I'm doing this, still have to realize, what are you? You know, if Abraham said, Anochi afar ba'efer, I am but dust and ashes. And King David said, Ani tolas velo ish, I am a worm, not a man. And Moses and Aaron says, Vanachnuma, what are we? They are all acknowledging the fact that we're still not perfect and we're really nothing. And that's, of course, humility, but they weren't lying about what they really thought. Because the more we recognize how distant we are, so to speak, from God, compare God's greatness to our greatness, like we're, we're really nothing. We haven't really accomplished anything. You know, the example of walking into the Pacific Ocean that we spoke about a few weeks ago, someone feels like, oh my gosh, I already walked in. I, I'm already swimming. I'm already standing. At the water's up to my, to my neck. Wow, I have accomplished so much. The truth is, no, you haven't even started. You're barely beginning. And, in the, and the further you go in, the, realize, the more you realize how much more work there is to do. And that idea it might be a little bit depressing. You're supposed to celebrate your victories and be happy and be inspired with your growth, but don't subsist with what you've accomplished. Because the second you do that, you're likely to start regressing. And finally, if not now, when? People may say, listen, I'm really busy. 
I got a project due, I got a book report for high schoolers, or there's the Super Bowl, I'll start after the Super Bowl, this has been a really tough year at work, I got to wait till things, you know, till my 401k hits the right uh, number, and then we'll start where That is the role of the Yetzirah, to say, okay, let's work on it tomorrow. Great idea, we'll start tomorrow, first first thing in the morning. <laughs> that That's what the Yetzirah does. And it's just delay, just delay it, delay it, delay it, because we're here and we have a shelf life. And if we don't do, if we don't get to work, we're not going to get to work. And here Hill tells us, if not right now, not not today, right now. If not right now, then when? Because if you have an excuse now, I guarantee you, you have an excuse then. Uh, the Rambam writes when he talks about the laws of of Torah study. He says that everyone must study Torah, everyone, and even if someone's really poor. And even if someone's really frail, and even if someone's really unhealthy, and even in someone who has a wife and children, <laughs> that's what he writes. If someone is so busy, they have a wife and children, they still have to study Torah. You, you cannot ignore it because the, there's never going to be a time that we have uh, – my schedule is wide open for the next five months and I ju- you just you know have a sabbatical and just study Torah. We have to find a way to integrate it into our lives. And then he quotes as well other – Teachings from Perkevos and elsewhere. Al Tomar Don't do not say that when I become available, when I have time, then I'll study. Why? Because maybe you'll never come available. You'll never find the time. And then uh, other commentaries uh, quote another teaching from Perkevos that says you should repent the day before you die. So when's that? Every day is. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know how much time we have left. I'm 31 years old now. I have uh, I so life expectancy maybe of I don't know seventy or eighty years. I can, so I got I got forty years left. What's the rush? What's the rush? I'll deal with it. Lord knows I'm busy. <laughs> if you don't start now, you'll never start because you'll always have excuses. And thus, we're told and we're encouraged to get to work immediately. I want to read a story from the Talmud that I do think covers a lot of these ideas. I, I might probably mentioned it before in some other contexts because it's one of my favorite stories. Um, but I think it does kind of hit a lot of these notes that Hillel is trying to teach us here. And it's a story of, of one Rabbi Eliezer ben Durdai. It's from the book of Avodazara on page 17a. And the context for this discussion is the Talmud's assertion that certain sins are like chemical addictions. This is the this is the Talm, Talmudic piece about chemical addictions, chemical dependencies, and it says that it talks about someone who was so connected to idolatry that were addicted to it, and if they would depart from it, they would die. Just like if you have an addict to narcotics or or harmful substances, you have to take them off slowly to stop cold turkey. Their body has developed a certain chemical dependency, and if they don't have it, they'll actually die. So Talmud talks about this individual. His name was Rabbi Eliezer ben Durdai. And he had a thing uh, for women of ill repute. And the Talmud says that he never, there was no woman, there was no uh, harlot in the world that he didn't patronize. And once he heard uh, that there was a harlot in the distant seas, that she was uh, very expensive, and he decided he's going to go visit her. And he takes a whole sack of gold coins and he has to travel across uh, a very uh, hazardous terrain. And finally, he meets her. And 
uh, they are interacting, and something happens that causes her to make a snide comment. She tells him, you're such a sinner, you will never return to your source. You'll never repent. Now, he's probably, I guess he's not used to hearing Musser from harlots, <laughs> and this, this, really, this really spoke to him. And he decided to repent. So what did he do? Helmut says he went and he sat between two mountains. And he spoke to the mountains. And he says, mountains and valleys, I want you to request mercy for me. Pray for me. I'm in such terrible shape, I need your help. So the mountains and the valleys respond, before we pray for you, let's pray for ourselves. We're too busy praying for ourselves. We can't pray for you. Quotes a verse to that effect. Fine. Mountains and valleys are not going to help him. He continues. And he goes and he says, Heaven and earth, you pray for me. And again, they respond, Before we pray for you, we've got to pray for ourselves. And they quote a verse to that effect as well. And he says, Okay, sun and the moon, you pray for me. And they again tell him, Before we pray for you, we've got to pray for ourselves. Finally, he says, stars and the galaxies, you pray for me. And they say, no, we're not praying for you. We've got to pray for ourselves. And of course, a verse to that effect. Finally, he concludes, Ein hadavar talui ela bi. The matter can only be remedied by me. I'm the only one who can fix this. I'm the only one who could who, 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 who repent. I cannot rely on any other sources. What did he do? He placed his head between his knees, and he cried until he passed away. And when he passed away, a prophetic voice announced, Rabbi Eliezer ben Dudai, it gave him posthumous ordination, this person is welcomed into Olmaba. And when Rabbi Judah the Prince heard that, he started crying, saying and lamenting, some people have to work their whole lives, many, many years, to get Olmaba. Whereas this person, he did it in one hour. That's that's the idea. So I think we really see, I think, at least two of Hillel's teachings in this story. First of all, this whole idea. Now, all the commentaries talk about what does this mean? Asking the mountains and the valleys and the sun and the moon and the stars and all that to pray for them. That's kind of an interesting idea. And all the commentaries talk about that. Like, What, what was he trying to do? Were they, they weren't really talking to him. Like, well, what, is the, what is the meaning behind that part of the, of the narrative? But the conclusion is, is important. Like his conclusion is that I am the only one who could change myself. I could find inspiration from all kinds of weird sources, and I could have all the influences in the world, but ultimately it it matters like the only person who could really change myself is me. We're all experts at changing other people. Certainly our spouses, like we know exactly all their faults, and we could outline them, and we have very, very good solutions to fix them. Like, it's just amazing. But somehow, the only person you could really change is yourself. And if everyone's trying to change other people, it's just, it's futile because you could change yourself and you cannot change other people. And it's ironic. I I would imagine not only do we try to change others more than we try to change ourselves, we know the problems that others have more than we know our own problems. Like, it's very easy for us to outline, like, our spouse's misdeeds and bad characteristics and bad habits. That's not hard for us to do. But to outline our own, that's really hard. 
because we're like we're even scared to talk about it. It's like you know, and ironically, the person who we can change is the person that we don't want to change, and we're scared of changing, and the change is painful. But here we're told the only person you could change is yourself, and even after Rabbi Lezer is inspired, he still wants to outsource the change elsewhere, and he still wants to say, okay, someone else will do it, and then he does it, and he changes himself to such a degree that he departs from his previous self, and he was an addict, and then he left it, and then he died. So that's, that's, that's the context of it. Uh, but again, we see this idea, a very powerful idea, that we can, we can change ourselves, only us can change ourselves. If I'm not, not for myself, then who is for myself? But by doing that, we also unearth and tap into our most powerful essence. Uh, but in addition, the, the end of the story, what does it say? It says that he gets a golden ticket to Olmaba, comes along Rabbi Drew the Prince and says, this is, this is not fair. Some people need to work so hard to get to Omaba, while others, they get in one hour. So my grandfather used to say a very interesting idea to, to um, bring home this, this story. He says, well, everyone has an hour that's going to change who they are. That's like the pivotal paradigm shift of their lives. The question is, how long do you have to wait to get that hour? Some people have to wait many years to find that time to change themselves. And maybe it's a progressive time where they finally are able to push it past the finish line. But other people, they get their hour all at once. But everyone's looking for that hour. Everyone's looking for that, that internal change where they're able to find out, discover who they are really and, and unearth that and become someone that's worthy of Olam Abba. question is, how long do you have to wait to get that hour? But my grandfather, he adds a line I want to read it to you. I found that in his writings uh, last night. This piece of knowledge should truly inspire and galvanize all our spiritual work. Every time we pray, every time we study, every time we do a mitzvah, we should hope and yearn and await, is this my hour? And every moment we have to utilize it for spiritual work and to make it holy and to remove all the barriers that separate us. And that is the idea that captures all of a man, all of man, if not now, when? Maybe this is my hour. There's a story about Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was the greatest halachic mind and arbiter of the 20th century. Story goes that there was someone who had maligned and berated and denigrated one of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's halachic rulings. Now, it's okay to disagree. Like, if you open up any book of Jewish law, it could be the Mishnah, the Talmud, any of the myriad of commentaries, or any of the myriad books that talk about halacha, you'll find that every page disagreements. That That's not uncommon. It's very common. But for someone to publicly lambaste the greatest rabbi and in disparaging terms is unheard of. Because there's a way to argue. It's okay to argue, but there's a way to do it. Anyhow, some person he berated and denigrated the great rabbi's ruling. And then, a few months later, the person knocks on the rabbi's door. And everyone assumes, okay, he's coming to apologize. Of course, right? And the guy walks in, he's like, okay, well, I wrote a, I wrote a book. And it's customary. When you write a book, you ask for an approbation, a letter of endorsement from one of, from one of the great rabbis. I want to know if Rabbi Moshe finds he can write me a, a letter of approbation assuring the readers this is a good book. So everyone, like the onlookers, are 
incredulous, like ah, such gall, such gumption for someone to walk in, not apologize and ask for a favor. Of course, the rabbi's gonna say, "No, get out of here." He pulls out a stationery, and he and he reads like leaves through the book and says, "Well, this amazing guy, great scholar, wrote a great book. Highly advised. You should read it, buy it. Fine." Gives him the letter and I says, "Thank you." Of course, he's gonna apologize now, right? Of course, right? No, gets up. Walks out, and the people, they can't believe it. What an utter embarrassment of Torah greatness on display. And the rabbi, so to speak, he didn't he didn't tell him. He, he, he should have mouthed off on him. So they go to him after him and say to him, why did you not stand up for the honor of Torah? This person comes in. This, he has the chutzpah to come and ask for a favor from you after he did something so shameful. So Rabbi Moshe finds and tells him, so, well, the Talmud tells us that some people acquire their world, Olamaba, in one hour. I thought, maybe this is my hour. Maybe this is my hour. Maybe this act of ignoring the misdeeds of others and doing something good for them, even though they're corrupt, maybe that was my hour. It's an interesting perspective that people have, is that, if not now, when? We always say it's very easy for us to push off things. And this is, of course, a characteristic that we have and all areas of our life. Like people love to push things off to the next day, right? Why push it off to tomorrow if you can push it off to the next day? And that is a problem, you know, and all hard things you don't want to do. But in spiritual minds here, we're told it's really critical that we retrain ourselves to, to say, if not now, when? And we see that there was an attitude that's present. Maybe we should try to think about it, uh, of being ready, being primed. To look for spiritual opportunities and say, now, I want to do as many as I can now. I think that would be a worthy fulfillment of, of Hillel's instruction.